long uh, process of prayer and fasting and seeking spiritual direction, I made the, the decision to become a doctor. Just kidding. I didn't do any of that. Uh, I was a church kid, and, uh, and so I, I took it a step farther, farther and said, uh, I'm going to um, be a missionary doctor. It was mostly because growing up in church, I saw these missionary doctors go on these super fun trips, and they could come back and give these cool, you know, uh, slide presentations, like pre-PowerPoint. You remember the little, like, carousel slides? Any church people in the house? And, uh, and you know, they'd come back and get c- congratulated, and they'd, you know, have a slide that has, like, all the numbers, how many patients they saw, how many people heard the gospel in the waiting room, how many operations they did. And, of course, you know, unfortunately, in some other countries, there'd be these, like, extreme medical conditions. Like, I remember vividly in my mind this, like, massive goiter that they took care of in a lady. And, you know, that picture made the, made the slide carousel and stuff. And so I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. That sounds great. I'm going to, I'm, I decide now as an eight-year-old I'm going to do that. And I latched onto that vision and pursued it all the way to the point where I was, like, a week away from starting my, my NCAT prep course in college. And I had, like, be, begun the med school applications and stuff. And then God just shattered me. I, on the one hand, I kind of had my gospel wakefulness moment. Like I just had this visceral experience of grace in a really powerful way. And then kind of the other side of that is that God showed me how I wanted to be a doctor for all the wrong reasons. To be clear, being a doctor is a beautiful thing, a great calling that I know a lot of us in this church have, have answered. Um, so I'm specifically talking about my own heart. So disclaimer. But God showed me that I wanted to be a doctor because essentially it would enable me to live my life, be a Christian without needing him at all. I'd make plenty of money, so I would, I would be secure. I wouldn't have to, you know, raise support uh, to be a missionary. I'd be approved by the people around me and uh, even like non-Christians, right? Because I'm actually like providing a service, you know? So you're like in Christian ministry, you talk to a non-Christian, they're like, I don't understand what you do with yourself. And I know that I, was, I had value, that I was worth something because I was doing operations. I was taking goiters out. I was going like to make the problem go away. The security, approval, significance, all these things that God has, I think, designed us to need, uh, and the, and, but these needs can only be truly satisfied in God. And, and I had thought I'd kind of crack the code as a way to get all these God-only needs met with me. I think one way to think about sin is getting our needs Met, uh, met apart from God. That's what Adam and Eve did with the fruit. And so I did an about face uh, and started pursuing uh, ministry, uh, a calling that honestly I'd felt for a long time and had lots of conversations about, but really resisted because it seemed lame to me and I had this you know, whole plan to not need God. Uh, and I can say from then on, I have only found my security, approval, and significance in God and never looked back. False. <laughs> Just kidding, to be clear. That is not true. Fast forward, I get a lot of examples, but fast forward uh, a lot of years, internships, seminary, etc. I'm pastoring my first church. It was an older, dying church that hired me in the hopes of you know, revitalization. And about a couple years, a couple angsty years into this revitalization uh, pastorate, I, I, God shattered me again. I had this moment late at night trying to fall asleep where... God just showed me that I was going to my role as a pastor in the church revitalization project for the exact same reasons. I was looking to get the exact same stuff from that as I was pursuing a doctor. If the church was revitalized, I'd have a salary. (laughs) I could keep getting paid. It wouldn't die. Uh, I'd I'd be approved, you know? Like, you take a dying church and make it alive, maybe I get invited to speak at conferences where people uh, say that that I am important. And I knew that I made a difference, right? This 
scruffy, unhealthy body becomes beautiful and healthy because I, I did the thing. I tell that part of my story because I think it captures what Paul is calling out in our sermon text, this reality of the human heart, uh, that life, I think, of most Jesus followers is that we, we relapse into getting our needs met in the flesh, on our own, apart from him. I think we might be good, I know I'm good at making it seem different, uh, but I think scripture here is showing us the broken, non-gospel ways of living. They die hard, and they, they pop back up like weeds. We forget that we are adopted, beloved children, heirs of all the treasures of life with God, and we go back to living like slaves. Ken unpacked this beautifully last week in, uh, in the sermon. The son has, has all these things, has all the needs met, security, approval, significance, because of who he is. Now, a slave can get some of those things, at least in some ways, by doing what? By being a good slave, by working hard. Like, as a slave, you can have security and being, like, valued, have a place in the family. You can have meaning from, like, working hard and all that stuff. But status of a slave, if that doesn't, you don't keep up the effort, you don't keep earning that, it's going to go away. So the text today that Janie read is probably uh, one of the strangest that I've ever preached, uh, at least, you know, ex- exegetically with the Greek and everything. Uh, it's Paul taking a break from some, like, really high-level theology uh, and uh, polemics. Anybody have to go look that word up after Ken used it last week? It, it means rebukes. Yeah, yeah, hey, me and Mike. Uh, <laughs> uh, take from the polemics, from his argument, from the rebuke of the Galatians, and he, and he, t- and he takes a shift into... <clears throat> into this personal uh, plea, this personal, it's almost like a DTR. He's like trying to like go back and define the relationship that he has with the church in Galatia. And so I, I was trying to wrestle with how to kind of nestle this personal plea into the overall picture of what Paul is saying. And I saw these two bookends. Hopefully you can track with this. Look what it says in verse 7. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. So this is what Ken hit last week. The greatest reality of the gospel is that we are now God's children. We belong with him. We don't have to earn anything. It's just because of our identity as his sons, we are safe, secure, approved, and valuable. And then look down at Galatians 4.19, at the end, right at the end of our sermon text. Paul says, My little children, for whom I am in anguish, in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you, So Paul is kind of flexing this metaphor here of being a son and daughter, born a son and daughter of God. That's why, you know, we talk about being born again. Like that's not, it's a little bit cheesy, but it's also biblical and true and beautiful. So we're born a son or or daughter in the gospel, and then he flexes into this labor metaphor, which is kind of a bold thing for a man to do, uh, that he's in anguish until Christ is formed in the lives of these people. And so the question is, well, who is Jesus? He's the son of God. So Paul desires to see the true son of God formed in us. He desires to see us grow into the fullness of Christ who lived life perfectly in that identity as a son of God. And disclaimer for this whole, I'll try to remember to say sons and daughters, but there is like some point, at least contextually for Paul, that we are all sons, men and women, because sons were the ones that had a right to the inheritance. The sons were the ones that had all the privileges, and that's true in the gospel for men and women. So disclaimer there. But so when I say sons, I mean all of us who are in Christ, men and women. So in my mind, these are like bookends. Like we are no longer slaves, but God's sons. 
And then Paul desires us to be fully formed into Christ. This is already happening, and then Paul wants this development, this uh, formation to happen more fully. And so my main point for this morning is we are sons of God, and we are becoming more and more fully like Jesus, the Son of God. We are sons of God, positionally, objectively in the gospel, and we are becoming more and more fully like Jesus, the Son of God. That's the big idea, living into our identity that is secure and purchased by us, for us by Jesus. But we have a lot of work to do to try to unpack this. There are many, like four or five different translations for a lot of these Greek words or whatever. There's a lot of strange, like limited, like expressions that Paul says. Uh, and then there's also like the circumstantial things that we get one side of the letter and don't have all the context. So we'll try to unpack that as best we can. Look with me at uh, verse 7 again through verse 10. I'll be uh, reading mostly out of the NLT, dipping into some others. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are a child, God has made you his heir. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of the world? You were trying to earn God's favor by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. So again, Pastor Ken already touched on these but I just want to point out one thing that I saw as I was trying to like unpack the context of Paul's uh, little DTR. Because it blew my mind. I was like, what? Is that really there? And then F.F. Bruce came in, who's a beastly you know, Greek scholar, and said I wasn't totally crazy. So in verse 8, he's talking about the church in Galatia before they became Christians, before they started following Jesus, before the gospel had made them all new. And he said, you were slaves to so-called gods that don't even exist. So this might be a little uncomfortable. This is out of, out of the norm. Let's, let's do it. I'm going to ask a question. I want you to shout out things. What are some of the non-gods that people apart from Jesus are sl- enslaved to? What do people enslaved to apart from, from God? Whoa, whoa, you guys are crushing it. Marriage, money, so huge. Any others? Yeah, for real. Career, work, yeah. Excellent examples. That went way better than I thought. I love you guys. Thank you. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. But here's what blew my mind. Verse 9, where he says, So now that you know God, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of the world? So now he's talking to the church after they've become Christians, after they've received the gospel. And the whole point of the, the book is a rebuke for them adding Torah observance, Jewish practices and traditions uh, to the gospel. So they, they, they've left a lot of you know, the, the pagan ways of uh, non-Jesus ways, and now they're in uh, this religious uh, zone. And Paul, this is the mind-blowing part. Paul says they are going back to the same useless spiritual principles. I think this is crazy. God, or Paul is saying that the non-gods and the worthless spirituality of the world are both Gentile living whether that's like, I don't know, you know, temple prostitutes or, you know, working too much or, you know, whatever, uh, or Torah observance. They are the same worthless spirituality. Here's F.F. Bruce with a hilarious snarl saying it way better than me. I think, do we have him? There he is. I love F.F. Bruce. Those glasses, the original hipster. The, uh, he says this, 
The worthless principles, it is now made plain, not only regulated the Jewish way of life under the law, they also regulated the pagan way of life in the service of gods that were no gods. To be enslaved to such counterfeit deities was to be enslaved to the worthless principles. And the Galatians would be enslaved to the worthless principles all over again if they reverted, not to their former paganism, but to Jewish religious practices. As Paul saw it, his Gentile readers were tending to revert to a form of religion which they had practiced before their conversion to Christianity. For all the basic differences between Judaism and paganism, both involved subjection to the same elemental forces. This is an astonishing statement for a former Pharisee to make. I think this is really important because it gets at something foundational to being human, something universal. Whether we might be different brands, different manifestations of it, but I think it's very core to what it means to be a human. And I just want to offer some practical rails to run on in terms of your thoughts as you explore your own relationship to slavery and the elementary principles of the, of, of the world or the worthless spirituality? Because like, what, what, what would be things that would be big enough to hold both like pagan living, worldly living, and religious traditions? And I would submit to you for your own reflection that it, it, they would flow out of those three core needs that I was going to being a doctor for, security, approval, and significance. Because these are needs that God has wired us to have as humans, and they're all only and perfectly answered in the gospel. In security, we're safe in Jesus' finished work. We no longer fear the penalty for our sin. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Approval in Christ, we're dressed in, his, in Christ's righteousness. God looks on us with love and delight and significance. We're worth enough to God that he would die for us and adopt us to bring us into his family. You know, and just like in Jesus' life, before he had done anything, before he had done any miracles, preached any sermons, healed anybody, God said, I am pleased with you. And in the gospel, in Christ, that is true over your life right now, Christian, that God is pleased with you. You are significant. You're doing a good job. So these are needs that aren't bad. They prime us for the gospel. But I would say, submit to you for your consideration, they get twisted by Satan through lies to become the non-gospel, worthless spiritual principles or lies from the world. And I think that, that you could think of them like this. Security gets twisted to say, I am what I have. Approval would say, I am what others say about me. Significance is, I am what I do. So these worthless principles, they can be the drive behind a wild heathen on a bender or this like over-the-top workaholic, stressed-out pastor. I mean, that's exactly what happened to me. I saw the worthless principles. I am what I do. Seeping into this new calling that I felt like God had given me. Trying to earn, meet my needs and earn my security, worth, and significance through, through instead of being a doctor now, being a pastor and not trusting the gospel of grace. My, my ambition, my godless strategies, the worthless principles of, of earning, literally in this case, just put on church clothes. And this is what the Galatians are doing, and so Paul is so concerned for them. He's like, did I waste my time with you? Because he's hoping to see them free from striving, free from earning slavery. And he's seeing them fall back into a different kind. of just like putting religious clothes on top of their old ways of being. And he's saying, you're sons 
objectively. You're free. You don't have to earn and strive and flail for your needs. They are all met for you in Christ. Look what Paul says next, the first part of 12. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things, for I have become like you Gentile, Gentiles, free from the law. So this is a work that, this is a verse that requires a lot of work. So see, see like what's on the screen right there? In the Greek, it's only be as I for I as you. Like there's only one verb. <laughs> so like what is Paul saying here? And the NLT is, is helping us out a little bit. Because in the context of this passage, if we're considering what's happening in the church in Galatia, and we're considering Paul's own story, what is, what is Paul doing? Paul is living in freedom. He went from being, he's kind of got the reverse journey of the church in Galatia. He was living as a Pharisee. He was crushing it under the law, or at least he thought he was, keeping all the rules, being a super rule follower. And he's no longer living that way. And the famous passage that he has in 1 Corinthians 9, where he's like, to to those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those not under the law, I became as one not under the law. So he became like the Gentiles. When he showed up to preach the gospel and plant a church in Galatia, he became like them. He wasn't living as a Jew. He wasn't submitting to Torah observance. And so he's calling them to be like him, to live in that same freedom that he experiences. Some of the most beautiful and powerful articulation of sonship under Abba Father comes from Paul, this former striver, rule crusher kind of guy. And that's what he wants for them. He's like, be like me. I left all that and then trying to live in this new reality, the, 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 the not worthless reality, which is that I'm a son of God. I think just for biblical context, I hope this is helpful. Uh, I, w- I was struck by how much Paul has this invitation to imitation throughout his epistles, how much he invites people to become like him. This isn't the only time that he does this. Let me just read a couple to you really quick. He says it real plainly in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Philippians 4.19, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 1 Corinthians 4, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now we got to fully acknowledge that Paul is a capital A apostle, like personally, face-to-face commissioned by Jesus. So he's in a small category of people, you know, we, none of us can claim the same level of you know, authority as Paul. Uh, but I think it is a, a powerful thing that we should consider in our own lives. And it's huge if we understand ourselves as children of God. Like, Paul right there says, like, as your father, look at me, imitate me. Like, this is just basic human development, basic neurodevelopment that we know, like, physically and, like, you know, horizontal relationships is that children imitate those that they are around. I have so many funny stories that I'm, like, trying to rein in right now of, like, but it would kind of make me look bad because my kids imitate me, and and good and bad. Uh, That's just what kids do. The, The people that we hang out with deeply impacts us. And so we just need to consider who is impacting us. Like, we, like neuro, neuro, neuroscience would say that we have mimicry neurons. Like God has wired us on purpose, for better or worse, to imitate those around us. And that can either be a bad thing, you know, if we're hanging around with bad company, or it could be a helpful thing. Obviously, ultimately, we want to imitate Christ. So that's a great place to start. Soak in the gospel, see what he did and said. Uh, 
But God designed the Christian life in a very kind way, which is that none of us are the first people to ever follow Jesus. Like, there's lots of other people uh, in our church and throughout history that have tried to do that, and we can consider uh, following them. And we can also consider uh, the degree to which, you know, th- this question. Are, are we showing up to the work of following Jesus for ourselves, like our disciple of Jesus, it, to a point that if a new follower of Jesus started hanging out with us, they'd have some rails to run on. They'd, they'd see a difference from how we live, how we're fighting those worthless principles, those lies of the devil. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what you say about me. Um, but w- would that be helpful to them? The, the first part of you know, making disciples is being one. Now Paul shifts from his rebuke of the Galatians. Uh, now we get to the DTR part. Uh, where he's kind of like leaning into some of this relational language uh, for this exact reason. Like, look at this relationship. Imitate me, because look at how close we are. Look at this history that we have. We'll look at the rest of verse 12. He says, You did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that, when I, that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I'm sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if it had been possible. Have I now become your enemy because I am telling you the truth? So piecing together the backstory, Paul had something going on. It seems to be something with his eyes. Uh, the ESV would say it's because of a bodily ailment that he stopped in Galatia to, to share. So again, we're like kind of putting together like puzzle pieces. Don't base your life on any of this. But uh, it, it, it does seem that there's something about gospel ministry in Paul where like maybe he was intending to go beyond Galatia, but because of the, the providence of setbacks and struggles and this eye thing, uh, it, presumably, he stayed there to recover. And because Paul's kind of a gangster, he just planted a church while he's waiting for his eyes to get better. Uh, why not, right? But it's profound that Paul is honoring the church. Like it's, it's almost like he's saying his illness was gross. It was a trial to them. It made them want to reject him. I just like picture Paul with like an eye infection or, or something like that. But by the power of the Spirit, they received the gospel from this guy with a gross eye thing. And they were grateful and overjoyed about it. And they cared for Paul as if he was an angel or Jesus himself. I think it's interesting that Paul allowed him to be served by these folks. Like he was there to do some gospel ministry. It is a beautiful picture. This mutual service, honor, respect, grateful for Paul, and Paul also being weak and needing help, and him being grateful to the churches. You know, he wasn't some shiny, hard, super Christian. He, he was weak. And let his weakness be an opportunity to see a, a church be, be birthed. And so this recap of their relationship leads to a question. It's all built up to be like, why am I your enemy now? Like, where's that gratitude and joy that we had together? Why am I your enemy as I call you back to the thing that brought us together in the first place? The thing that's the basis for our relationship. I love you. You love me. Look at our relationship. I know these are hard words. I know I called you foolish a, little, a couple chapters ago. But it's because I love you. It's, it was good for my soul. You know, we might idealize the early church and Paul's ministry. You know, do-do-do, I'm sick, and boom, a church. But if you read closely, there's pain here. There's heartache. And this, and all over Paul's epistles, like, everyone in Asia has abandoned me. Like, you blow past that line. But like, as an old man looking back, sorry, that's a, that's a tangent. 
A lot of pain in Paul's letters. Uh, He's pleading his relationship with the church, and I think this is so profound. He's pleading with them by honoring them. He didn't dwell on, like, I did this for you. I was sick, and I still preached the gospel for you, and blah, 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 blah. He's like, no, you, you, you were so good to me. I have nothing against you. you. You were so kind to me. And after this DTR of his relationship, he moves on to the false teachers that he's trying to refute with this whole, uh, whole passage. These are false teachers that have been messing with the church by telling them that they need to be circumcised in order to belong, to be sons of God, to be right with God. So look at verse 17. Those false teachers are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They are trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention to only them. If someone is eager to do good, good things for you, that's all right. But let them do it all the time, not just <clears throat> when I'm with you. So these, this is a strange couple of verses. It's translated like a bunch of different ways in each, uh, whichever translation you're reading. Uh, verse 17 is addressing the nature of the false teachers. It says they're treating them well. They're trying to win their favor. Uh, the word translated win favor there is also translated make much of in the ESV, zealous for you in the NIV. And one commentator said it's like, it's a word that gives the imagery of courting. Like you're like, someone's like dating, you know, dating someone, trying to win the affections of, of the girl in hopes that she would marry him or something like that. It's like they're trying to woo and seduce. And he's acknowledging like, yeah, they might seem nice. It might seem like they're doing a good job. They're, they're, they're puffing you up. They're like, hey, if you do this stuff, you'll be awesome, you know? You'll get extra favor if you, if you try to, to earn it. But he says, like, it's for selfish ambition. It's wanting to shut the church off from Paul and the goodness of being God's sons by grace through faith. And it's for the purpose of kind of their own, their own, their own power grab, like their own selfish ambition. Be dependent, on, be dependent on them. Make much of them. And there's, this is, you know, not unique to Galatia, the church in Galatia, like, an obvious example would be cult, right? Where everything has to come from like one, one leader or a small group or whatever. Uh, you know, less obvious examples would be, you know, like the angry quote-unquote prophetic churches that have to call out everything wrong with every other church and every other book in, in the whole world. And so if you want to be safe, if you want to be right, you got to like be here in my church and let me tell you what's right and wrong. But then it can get sneaky. This is convicting to me where a good action might get tainted. Long This really stuck with me. This is like, Eight or nine years ago, I was talking to a church planner, and he confessed that God was showing him how he's interested in people that he's like meeting as he church plants because he just is trying to build his church. Like he doesn't really care about them at all. He's just trying to make his project work. And he's, he was like, I was reading an article, and I'm like, oh, this dude would love this article. We can go get a beer, and he'll think, you know, I'm thinking of him and all this stuff. And he's like, God just blew me up. I was doing it out of place of need of trying to like woo him in to get him to like make much of my church plant or whatever. So it can be super sneaky. Uh, verse 18 ties this together. Uh, St. Eugene, in the message, translates it, paraphrases it like this. I thought this was helpful. said, it is a good thing to be ardent in doing good, but not just when I'm with you in your presence. Can't you continue the same concern for both my person and my message when I am away from you that you had when I was with you? So he's kind of, after all this big polemic, to use our fancy word from Pastor Ken, uh, with rebukes and all this stuff, he's just pleading like, can't you care with me the same, way I was, the same way that when I was with you is when I'm away from you? Don't you care about the message that I was preaching? He's appealing to the relationship. 
He's about to dive back into some like intense Old Testament metaphor and get back up in the, in the clouds and theological arguments. But right here, he's just like, don't you care about our relationship? I love you. He wants them to be favorable, zealous, ardent, doing good, but in the same way, even when he was sick, not just be swept up or seduced by whoever's paying court, whoever's trying to court them or make them feel good. And finally, he kind of brings it back into some of his theology. This is an incredible verse where it, we just see Paul's like beautiful, broken heart for this church that he deeply, deeply loves, uh, meeting with, with some like really fun theology. So Galatians 4.19 says this, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So Paul has worked, worked up here. I mean, we see him calling them little children, this term of affection, how he's in, in anguish. Again, this feels like a bold move for me, and maybe it's just like a 2022 perspective, but I don't think I'd ever say I was like in labor. For I love you guys, but I don't know if I could pull that off. Uh, I, if you've ever seen a childbirth, I've seen three of them. Uh, they're beautiful, but also terrifying. And based on context clues, very painful. But <laughs> Paul is saying... He feels like a woman in labor until Christ is formed in them. They live into their true sonship. Yes, Paul is theological. Yes, Paul cares about their their gospel doctrine and protecting the purity of it, but it's coming from this this maternal affection, this desire that's a a pain that he's feeling. He's saying that like a woman in labor until Christ is formed in them, they, they want them to live into their true sonship to the true identity that they already have. And this brings us back to our main idea, being formed into what we already are, that we are sons of God and we are being more and more, becoming more and more fully like Jesus, the true son of God. Let me just like beat this into the ground. Verse seven says, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. That's a fact, Jack. How do we know? Look at verse 5, right after that. It says, or right before that, God sent him, Jesus, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. So our identity as God's sons is based in what Jesus has done. God sent Jesus to buy us freedom with his blood on the cross. So then why is... Paul having labor pains until Christ is formed in them. Because though Jesus' followers are objectively, positionally, securely sons of God, sons and daughters of God, subjectively, experientially, we can fall back into slavery. Just like I did years into pastoring. I didn't lose my salvation. It wasn't like I wasn't saved. God was my father. I was just not living into my true identity. And so the question that we are left with, or that comes to my mind, as I shared earlier, my favorite kind of question, how? How do we as people who are objectively in Christ experience more and more freedom and joy as Christ is formed in us, birthed in us? How is Christ formed in us? It's kind of the driving question of my life. We just finished up our Become Like Jesus class, which was a dream come true to teach. Eight weeks, getting super practical about this stuff. So there's the, most of the teachings are on our podcast, if you want to go listen to that, um, How to Become Like Jesus. But John Piper, in his sermon on this text, 
says it like this. He, God, is glorified when we turn from ourselves and trust him like little children to enable us to do his bidding. This is the best news in the world because it opens up the way of salvation to the simplest and weakest of us all. Remember the beauty of the gospel, the loved received, and set up your life to receive it. So what does it look like to set up our lives so that we have space to receive the, the spirit of adoptions as sons, to, to, to make, make ourselves available to feel like God's kids, God's children, God's son or daughter? So what is a way to kind of put guardrails on the, on the slippery slope into believing that I am what I do, I am what I have, I am what people say about me? I just want to put one spiritual practice before you. A little bit controversial. I'll probably get in trouble for this, but let's, let's talk about it. And that's the spiritual discipline of observing the Sabbath. Like, maybe I'm being silly right now because Paul did just like criticize the, the, the Galatians for like, you observe days and months and years and seasons. But look what, <clears throat> look, look what the NLT says of that passage. This is verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 10. You were trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. Paul is saying that people are trying to earn God from their observing of days. And I, and I say this, again, maybe it's not helpful. Feel free to just, you know, whatever, check Twitter. But, like, I think this, this shows the reality of living as a son or daughter. Is that, that we, it, how we do things makes a huge difference. Apart from the gospel... When we're living out of those lies, we might observe a day or do any other religious practice in order to earn God's favor. But practicing a weekly Sabbath in light of the gospel under the Lord of the Sabbath, who is who? Jesus. Means that we don't observe a day to earn God's favor, but we observe a day we create space to experience the favor that we already have. This is what the disciplines are. All of them are creating space in some way, shape, or form to experience the favor that we already have, live in the identity that we already have in Christ. In my experience, few things have made my life feel, made me feel more like a kid, more rested, secured, cared for than practicing a Sabbath. In our house, on the Sabbath, we light two candles, which is convenient for now because we have two kids big enough that want to light candles. So they each get to do one. We say, what do the candles represent? They say, rest and delight. And then we ask, why do we rest and delight on the Sabbath? Because God is in control, so we can rest. And God is good, so we can delight. And then we take naps and read books and go for hikes and bike rides and play at the beach and eat good food and don't look at our phones or talk about work or anything like that. It is a, it is a gift. It was made for us and it's space where we can just hold before God. And some Sabbaths are super, super hard. You know, your, your heart's shattered and you're just like, here I am, God, trying to rest and delight, but I feel like, you know, I just need some, you know, anesthesia or something like that. But you show up to it and you say, God, I know that I'm your son. I want to live like you're, like, like you're my father. Help me do it. And I'll just say, if you haven't practiced the Sabbath, let me say it's wonderful but also very hard, especially when you're getting started. Uh, you know, for, I, for one, found that if you try to do Sabbath one day a week, it's going to require changes for all the other six days. And I was so encouraged by our class this past winter. Someone was deciding to try to start the practice of Sabbath, and they're like, you know what? I think I can only do it once a month for now. 
uh, because this is a big shift in my life, rhythms or whatever. That is beautiful freedom in Christ. Like understanding the Sabbath, that it's a gift, and being like, well, I have so many questions about how to actually do that, so let me just like shoot for one time a month. Like we're not here to like, you know, check a box every week. We're here to make space to receive our sonship, to live into our identity. And Sabbath will show us, it shows us good things, but it also shows us the ugly like slavery parts that still look in our hearts. Things where, you know, that might be good, but they're actually coming from this place, this scheme to try to get security and approval. You know, we go through withdrawal when we begin to Sabbath. Uh, the, 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 the discipline shows good, the treasures of the gospel. It also shows us parts that are not uh, in our souls that are not a part of it. Um, so I'd love to say more. You can go listen to the Sabbath podcast on our podcast feed. Uh, but to close, right now, Christian, I'd invite you to just close your eyes, take a deep breath, And just acknowledge, like turn the eyes of your heart to see your father looking on you with delight and affection. That you are his child. He loves you. He loves the work you're already doing. He's singing songs of delight over you. He's not withholding his affection until you get it together. He just wants you to come to him. And he's holding out his arms to embrace you, to call you back from our tendency to strive and scheme the frantic pace that we live inviting us to come to him and find rest for our souls, for your soul. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we stand before this treasure of our our identity as your children. We stand before this beautiful reality that you are forming Christ in us, making us more and more uh, in line with your true son, Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would... uh, right now be convicting our hearts of where we have fallen back into the the elemental, worthless spiritual principles, following lies, trying to earn our our favor with you, trying to earn uh, our needs. Would you please uh, call those out with your tender, tender fatherly compassion? Pray conviction would be sweet. And Father, as we just consider ways to make space to live as your children, would you make it clear? Give us willing, make us willing to let things die, um, let things go that are hindering us from experiencing the treasures we have in the gospel. Father, will we be uh, a community of your children who love each other well, who love the world well, and receive, set up our lives to receive your love in the gospel? Amen.